316 presents... Hello and welcome to On Location, the show where we get to share with you the things that our listeners have been up to and care about. Something a bit different this time out. Andrew Guthrie Milne was a Perth railwayman who in around 1902 took up stereo photography as a hobby. Active in competition, Andrew and his wife Harriet took his 3D camera around Scotland with the objective of creating great photographs. 100 years later, Sunny 16 podcast listener Ian Wallace, who is at Ian underscore on a hill road, undertook a project of over 10 years duration that turned out to be a photo history adventure. Eventually, it led to him to revisit every one of the locations Andrew placed his camera a hundred years before. In this podcast, Jim Duncan, who is Andrew's great-nephew, and Ian, Andrew's great-great-nephew, discuss Andrew's photographic work, stereo photography in general, and how the project led to the book On a Hill Road. On a Hill Road, it's a book, actually, that Ian Wallace, who sat here with me, is uh, my cousin, wrote in tribute to his great-granduncle, Andrew Milne. He's my granduncle, giving you some idea. My name's Jim Duncan, and uh, he was brother-in-law to my grandmother in a series of uh, stereo photography pictures. That is how it all started. And... Ian got into it and decided he was going to do a book. So, Ian, just tell us how the book started. Well, the book started because, well, I didn't know I was going to write a book, to be honest. Um, I first heard about these stereo photographs when I was about 10 years old. My father used to talk about them, and um, he he always talked about them with an aura of how great they were, but we never saw them. And I, I saw them for the first time in 1973 when... Um, we visited your father at Christmas one year, and I'd forgotten all about them for many years, but I have a, a personal love of photography, and eventually uh, I really wanted to see them again, and you were kind enough to let me uh, view the photographs again, and at that time I scanned them. And from those scans, I started when I went to Scotland to visit some of the places, and Eventually, visiting one or two places turned into visiting lots of them. And then that turned into, well, I better visit all of them. And then when I'd visited all of them, I thought, what am I going to do? So it better go into a book because actually what I found was that Andrew took some really great photographs uh, and they justified showing them to other people and being able to share them. Um, Having Andrew Milne's collection of photographs, and they're they're the ones that, uh, standing. If nobody has seen stereo photographs, you might have seen the old pictures there. A little boy sat on a, a chamber pot there, uh, holding uh, the viewer in his hand, looking at things in 3D. These were really, uh, it's an early form of tablet sort of thing. Um, pre-television days, 1902 to 1907 was the period that we're looking at. So these were indoor entertainment and they go through and they give you a great insight into the pieces there. Um, now, Andrew Milne worked for the Caledonian Railway, followed his father into the railway, uh, lived perhaps 10 minutes, five minutes walk from the railway there. 
and started taking pictures. He was a very keen uh, competition photographer. And then he discovered stereo uh, photograph, photography, stereo photography. And he had that. And he went round and he started to do it round. And we're going to follow his journey across the east coast of Scotland, right the way up through to the very top at Thurso, and look at some of the pictures he took and some of the great ones to make his journey come out. But the great thing was, Ian, you actually followed him round and took the same pictures. Yes, so bef before we talk about where, where we went around Scotland, um, it's, it's probably worth saying something about stereo photography. Um, some people will be very familiar with it, but I suspect a lot of people maybe have never heard of stereo photography. And the amazing thing about stereo photography is it gives you a 3D image. It allows you to see the way your eyes naturally see. And the thing that surprises many people is they don't realize that stereo photography is actually as old as photography. Um, it was exhibited at the Great Exhibition in 1851. So it's been around for the whole lifetime of photography and it's gone through periods where it's been very popular. Um, in the 1860s, there were crazes. Everybody collected the cards. Um, but by the time Andrew Milne took up stereo photography, um, it was having a bit of a, a rebirth and it was available to amateurs. Photography had gone through that period where uh, it was getting less expensive to get a camera. People could start to do things themselves. And Andrew Milne, he didn't have any children. He had a really good job. Uh, and so he had a decent budget. And he went out and bought himself a very expensive camera. And that was a camera that had a posh shutter, two lenses, and took stereo 3D photographs. Um, and together with that, you have the little viewer that Jim was talking about, where you take the card that is produced with two images, one for each of the left and right eye, uh, and you put it in the viewer, and then you can hold it up to your eyes. And with a little bit of adjustment, you'll get back that beautiful 3D image. That was a lot of heavy equipment that Andrew Milne was carrying. Um, when you think about it, he had a tripod, which wouldn't be made out of aluminium. That would be made out of good quality wood, three extension lugs on the side of it. He would have the camera. Now, these cameras were made with a wooden frame with the two lenses on the front, the strappage and the bits and pieces, plus the glass plates. Now, these were glass plates they took the pictures on. All this had to be carried by Andrew and his loving wife, Harriet, who was very much part of it. And to give us a good insight into where they go, he did actually set up and do some very early photographs of them inside their house. Typical Edwardian house with loads of ornaments and bits and pieces sat up at the side there. And they're both sat there um, at the table writing about the big thing that you miss. There's no television up in the corner. The whole television, the whole imagery was going to be provided by Andrew. And Andrew decided that he was into competition, but he then wanted to increase his scope he was taking pictures of and he started taking a lot of pictures from literally outside his front door up in the bedroom uh, wherever he could get height and height was a great thing that you could get down to look down on the pictures um whereabouts were some of the places he took in perth then ian well yes as you as you do andrew took his camera all around his own hometown he took it to the local parks he took it down into the town center he took it to the local um shows um, he took it to the auction mart, which would have been linked to his house. So there are all sorts of uh, shots that he took around Perth itself. And you're quite right. The equipment would have been quite heavy. And one of the wonderful things about doing this was when you do this kind of um, 
recreating what somebody else has done, you learn things that you could never have learned any other way. And as I went round taking my camera and trying to find the places where Andrew had put up his tripod, you'd start to get a feel for his day. And one of the places when you were just talking about the weight of it all there that I really sprung into my mind was the station at Dunkeld. Because you get off at Dunkeld and I and I drove to the railway station there and I looked around and I thought, well, I'm holding a photograph that Andrew took taken in the middle of some woodland of a track going up a, up a lane. How on earth am I ever going to find that? And I walked from the station, the only way you could walk, under the tunnel where... Beatrix Potter used to chase the chase the pony traps uh, and up into the woods and almost immediately there was the curve in the in the path that um, was in the photograph and this spot that I thought it'd be almost impossible to find it was right there and you can almost imagine he's got all of this gear he gets off the train he goes a relatively short distance because he doesn't want to take it too far he says let's take a picture uh, and so you start to get this feel for how their day went when they went out because he wouldn't take too many pictures, but quite often the places where he takes the pictures are not too far from where his transports brought him to. One of the most fascinating pictures, I think, that um, Andrew Milne took um, on his uh, journey to uh, on a hill road was actually in the middle of Perth. And I think it was one of those that really you struggled to find out where he took it from because um, in those days he hadn't got a selfie stick or anything like that to do it. Um, He had to get his gear and everything like that. And you must have been quite a familiar figure around Perth, lugging a big uh, tripod around and the camera gear and his hat and everything like that. They'd be, hi, Andrew, how are you doing? And he'd be taking the pictures just about everywhere as they were going. So there's one particular one on a crossroads. And I think you've got the story behind it, Ian, of how he actually took this one particular picture. Yes, I know the picture you're thinking of, Jim. Um, It's entitled High Street Perth, and Andrew put it in competition. And um, he he also had a second title for it, which is Street Scene. But when I went to try and relocate this, obviously finding the street is very easy. What I just couldn't work out was where on earth he'd taken the photograph from because it didn't seem to really matter where I stood. I just couldn't get the same viewpoint. And I I found myself almost standing in the middle of a crossroads, you know, with the traffic going past. And I looked around and there was a church, but that was too far away. So he couldn't have been up there. There were no real obvious balconies that would give him the viewpoint. And then eventually it dawned on me what he'd done. The answer's in the picture. When you look at a picture... There is a tram coming right down the middle of the street and there would have been another one going across the end of the street. And what I think Andrew did was he he either was very prepared for the tram to stop at the end of the high street or he had a quick word with the conductor and said, can you stop for a minute on the end of the high street? Uh, And then he had his whole tripod and everything set up on the top of the open top tram and that was how he got the height. When you look at the photograph... He's looking at the bulb. He's looking at the lighting fitting on the lamppost. So he's really high up. But I'm pretty certain he was on top of the tram. And when you imagine trying to take photographs with a camera that has a relatively slow shutter speed and a load of cumbersome equipment on top of the tram, it was pretty advanced for it, for its time for him to be doing that. 
In effect, he was sort of like early paparazzi, really, going around just taking pictures just about everywhere as they went round. Andrew Milne, paparazzi from Perth. Yeah, it sounds quite good as it goes through. Now, as a competition photographer, he would go around and look at it. And having had success with trams in Perth, now, most other uh, big cities in Scotland, they also had their tram systems. Are there any more examples of it, Ian? Yes, the, the development of the tram uh, as a town centre facility, as a, as a transport system in the towns around Scotland around this time is one of the stories that comes out of the book. Well, what I found was when I went to all the places Andrew went to, you discover that he went there and he went on the tram. And indeed, his success with the photograph in Perth, uh, I believe, led to him going to Dundee uh, and getting on the tram in Dundee with his camera as well. But in Dundee, he went one step further. Instead of just stopping in one particular spot and taking the photograph, he got on the tram at the centre of Dundee, right in the heart of the city. And there's a there's a really great photograph, which you'd probably call street photography today, um, of the, uh, the big old town centre building, which is knocked down in the 1930s to make way for a square. And Andrew took his camera and he stayed on the tram all the way along the line. So what we now have is a great set of photographs that go all the way along the tram route uh, through the centre of Dundee. Um, one of my favourites is the one taken um, just outside the, uh, the the big church where there's a taxi line and you can see all the hackney cabs lined up at the side of the road in his photograph. And this is again one of these things that only happens when you go back to where somebody took the photograph. When I went to take the photograph, there is still a line of taxi cabs all lined up along the side of the road. And that's the kind of thing where you just go, oh wow, isn't that great that it's just like that uh, today. Continuing the thought of trams there on and Andrew Milne's, uh, it's, all the things we're talking about were recorded in a book that we did, On a Hill Road, and On a Hill Road is a journey around Scotland, and if you go to Scotland, you've got to go to places, and one of the great parts that he did up there, he took the train from uh, Perth, which about a two-hour trip, I suppose it would be, up to Aberdeen. Now, Aberdeen has its trams, and we were talking about trams. But the other thing that Aberdeen had in the day was a fish market, one of the biggest fish markets in Scotland. The herring boats would come in there when they were doing the trips round. But their main fish market was, well, it looked like Billingsgate. All the fish were laid out on the floor there. The auctioneers would go around. They would come and collect them, take them back to the train and put them out, and they would go away there. Every fish that there was, and there was fish there that looked so beautiful, you could eat them now. But they were all laid out and sorted, and it was everybody else's bit there. But it's not there now. It's all gone. Even the smell is gone. So we haven't got anything of it now. But um, in those days, to take your photography where you're taking pictures of buildings and people, and then suddenly you take an animate object like fish, and you've got to recreate and get the fish alive, how difficult would that be in stereo? Yes, I think the, the challenge for Andrew in Aberdeen at the fish market was actually probably the lighting because he was inside the, uh, the, the places where they laid out all the fish. And in the photographs, you can see the fish just going away into the distance. And again, uh, as you say, it's all gone. And when we went there, the kind of discovering where Andrew put his camera, the only thing I could find were the cut-off ends of the steel girders that used to hold the roof up on the building. Uh, and they're just there in the concrete key and everything else is gone. But 
Andrew's trip to Aberdeen is another story of the tram in Edwardian Scotland, um, because when you look at the places that he travelled around Aberdeen, you find that most of them are at the end of a tram route. So, for example, he travelled to the Duthie Park, uh, and the Duthie Park is on the end of what was one of the newest tram routes at the time. Um, there's a beautiful photograph that he took inside the greenhouse, and in that photograph, we see Harriet acting, as she does in many of the photographs, as the human interest, and just standing, posed, poised, uh, posed in, in the photograph, uh, and creating a much more interesting photograph than if he'd just taken a picture of the plants. And this is one of the things that, again, sets some of Andrew's pictures uh, aside, is that he actually does take time in composition. Because he was competing, he's trying to create great photographs, not just take a picture for the memory. Um, I actually got the uh, tram map from the uh, Aberdeen Library, uh, and in the book you can see that uh, each of the places where the photographs were taken is marked out on it, and they're all at the end of a tram line. I'm Jim Duncan, and I've got Ian Wallace with me, and we're sat here reminiscing over a box that's been in our families for, oh, 1902 was when it first started. This is a collection of stereographic photographs taken by our great-great-uncle, Uncle Andrew Milne from Perth. He was an extremely keen uh, photographer. He went into stereo photography, and he retorted these books. We had these. These became a novelty thing that came down. And it was only Ian's inherent uh, interest in photography that he looked at that and said, how did he do it? Where did he do it? And why did he do it and get it to go in? And I'll have a go at doing it. So I think that is the best way. But I just look at them and think they were great pictures. There's a couple of pictures there that we won't talk about because um, even in those days, they used to have the girls who had made page three on the sun and they used to have those pictures stuck in amongst them. But we di didn't look at those too long. But as a young children, we used to love looking at those. But that's another story. But it was following the story of the pictures in the book the Edwardian ladies with the magnificent hats. Now, I don't know whether the hat was as big as the bustle, but they were both enormous as they came through. Um, Andrew's wife, uh, the two of them were together. They took the pictures. She posed in amongst it. And because she was a glamorous lady in those days and dressed at the height of fashion, that helped Andrew in his competition pictures as they went through. We've been to Aberdeen. I think if we stay on the train a little bit farther, we'll go right up the very top. And let's go up to Thurzo, because if you go up to Thurzo, you've got that wonderful bit up there, the Pentland Firth, where the froth blows away between you get to between us and Orkney. And I think we've got some great pictures up that way. Andrew Mill, photographer extraordinaire. His great-great-nephew, Ian Wallace. Yes, I, I travelled to Thurzo. I've, I've been to Thurzo twice. It's an awful long way. The first time I went, I was only about 18, and I hitchhiked from in the middle of the night. The second time I was part of a trip I made to visit a lot of the northern locations uh, that Andrew went to. And there are some really great photographs in places like Wick, um, where he took all of the Herring uh, Harbour and you can see all the barrels stacked along the quay. They're really great, really, really great pictures. And the other place, not quite as far as that, was Fraserburgh. And I think Andrew, when he went to Fraserburgh, Fraserburgh, the, the railway line doesn't go beyond Fraserburgh. So 
you couldn't really go anywhere other than to Fraserburgh. And if you've been to Fraserburgh without being unkind to the town, there wasn't much more than the harbour. And I think this is what people went, what he went for. He went to photograph the harbour and the ships. And I can almost imagine Harriet saying, well, if you're going all the way up there, I'm going to have the day in the town in Aberdeen. Anyway, Andrew takes his camera to Fraserburgh and he takes what I think are some of the most impressive photographs that he took because he photographs the herring boats coming into the quay. And not only does he get a great composition, it, the challenge is really difficult. He's got a moving boat coming towards the quay. He's got two small urchins that he's he's posed in the corner of the frame. Two young lads sat there in the corner of the frame. And the whole thing's got to be done on a relatively slow shutter speed. They're beautiful photographs. And it, as I started to go through the pictures it was pictures like this that i found and looked at the 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 ones in fraserburgh and said you know this has got to be worth sharing because there's such beautiful photographs lovers of shakespeare will remember the the famous line burnham wood moves tonight and i remember our old literature master saying that was they were disguised as trees and they advanced up as trees at night and they would be hidden behind bushes but they were actually the almonds there. Burnham Wood is an absolute beautiful place there. But one of the great things that Andrew Milne did was something that uh, he was doing it way back then, 1902, 1907 we're talking about. Uh, we do now. We do it automatically. i got a stick that I stick my phone on and I take what's known as a selfie. Now, he was taking selfies back in 1902, setting the family up and doing it like that. But there must have been an art to it. Tell us about it, Ian. So the picture you're thinking of is on Burnham Hill, self-taken. And, and I love the way Andrew calls the photographs self-taken. And you can see it written on in pencil on the side of, on the, side of the photograph. This is really an interesting photograph for, for two or three reasons. As you say, he's, t he's taken time to compose uh, a selfie, which actually is a party selfie. So he's got four people in the picture to compose. And he's standing there with his bottle of beer just holding it as if he's pouring it into his glass in the photograph, which is lovely. But as a photographer, there are two things in the photograph that when you look very carefully, you can notice. The first one is you can actually see the rubber hose running from probably the bulb under his foot back towards the camera in the picture. You can see it running through the glass. And the second one is a thing which, as a photographer, would almost certainly have driven him absolutely nuts when he got the photograph and had it processed. Uh, and that was that if you look at the picture of himself, before he's taken the photograph, he's arranged the scene. And in arranging the scene, he's moved some of the paraphernalia they brought with them. So he's taken an umbrella and a few other things and he's moved them out to the back of the picture. Unfortunately, because he couldn't see what he was framing because he was going to be in the picture, when he stood back in the picture, the umbrella is now growing out of his head. <laughs> <laughs> so as a photographer you see these things after you've taken the photograph and they drive you absolutely nuts but uh, it just made me laugh when i realized what had happened in the peak interesting thing what a gust of wind will do with it all there but that picture particular picture there um when we look at it and you look at it in depth there uh how does how effective how fast is the hose with the rubber ball under his foot to press down to actually actuate the shutter, uh, would it be reliable? Would it go as quick as what you can do it with a Wi-Fi or something like that? 
I don't know whether it goes in like that. And the other point I'd like to make, Ian, uh, I'd like your comments on is um, it's supposed to be a picnic on uh, Burnham Hill. The bonnets that the ladies have on, they're absolutely glorious Ascot hats, really. Uh, would people really have dressed like that if they were going out for a picnic? Yes, the hats were very much Edwardian fashion. So the ladies were all wearing these big hats, and especially if they were, it was an occasion, maybe they're out for the day or it's Sunday or whatever. So the hats were, were very much the fashion of the day. Um, as to the, the shutter, um, well, you might have found it a little bit more difficult to judge exactly when the shutter was going to fire. But um, Andrew was using a Thornton Picard uh, stereo shutter, which is a roller blind shutter, and it's pretty efficient and it has, offers a range of shutter speeds. Uh, and so he, he, would, he, would have, he would have been pretty confident about that shutter. Um, and he also had available to him something which we, we maybe talk about in one of the other photographs, which is a, a, a time exposure valve, uh, which is a fascinating gadget, which actually goes in the rubber hose. And when you squeeze the bulb, it, it delays the time for the shutter uh, operating uh, and what you could use that for was if the shutter was set to uh, only stay open for for a longer period then you can get two or three seconds exposures with it so although the film's not very fast he could use it in low light situations um, and the one that's my favorite is actually the ones in uh, Glam's Castle uh, and he took some photographs in the greenhouses in Glam's Castle where he used the time exposure valve and what that allowed him to do was get great depth of field in the photographs. So the photographs that he took inside the greenhouses at Glam's Castle, they're really beautiful. And I think he had a connection with Glam's because as a boy, he'd grown up just down the road. I suspect he may even have had a family connection uh, with people working on the estate there. Uh, and, and that's probably how he got access to take these pictures in the greenhouse. Um, but... The reason we know all this detail, I know what shutter he used, I know what camera he used, is because on the cards that Andrew put in competition, he wrote all the details on the back of the card, even down to the lens number. We're talking uh, actually together, um, Ian Wallace and myself, Jim Duncan, about our great-great-uncle Andrew Milne from Perth in 1902 to 1907, compiled a whole series of stereographic photographs which was stored in a box and kept in the loft. And great excitement, we discovered them, we had a look at them. Ian, with his photography uh, nose, as it were, looked at them and decided to follow out where the pictures were taken and take a modern-day picture of them. Now, most of the pictures were taken because Andrew Milne worked for the Caledonian Railway and obviously he had railwayman's concessions, and used to travel up and down the east coast of Scotland. Very rare did he venture over on the west coast. But once he went over there, and he went to Alloway's, uh, to over to Alloway, just to have a look at a couple of things he wanted to look at. One was the Haunted Kirk. Uh, for those south of the border, that's the church, and it's a wee bit of church where the ghosts walk about. And also the Burns Monument at Alloway. And he did some great pictures there. And one of the great pictures there, he took something that's not there anymore. They had, used to have a wall there that they'd stuck thousands upon thousands of seashells, some with little mirrors in, for the visitors to have a look at and go through. But it was these insights into parts of uh, 
what is Scotland now that you don't see very often that you can go and have a look at way up on the top there. But uh, it was the, the picture of the, the, the Kirk with the wife. That's Harriet. That's Andrew's wife stood there waiting to go in the door. Um, it was an interesting little foresight, but I don't think these were competition ones. This would have been a day out, wouldn't it? Yes, I'm sure this was a trip trip out. Uh, and Andrew was visiting a lot of the tourist spots in air, really. And that photograph that you're talking about, uh, it's a really good example of where Andrew is spending just a little more time on composition than the average photographer. Um, you can see many commercial photographs of the old Kirk in Alloway. Uh, and it's famous because this is where Byrne's parents are buried, right in front of the church. Uh, but Andrew got Harriet to stand just in a lovely spot in the photograph, looking at one of the gravestones as if she's reading it. And it makes the photograph, it makes it completely a, a beautiful picture, much nicer than the normal commercial photographs you see for the tourists. Um, the other thing about that particular photograph was it was actually spine-tingling to, to go there and take the photograph in the same spot because there are so many gravestones you can line up where you're putting your tripod almost to the millimeter because there's only one place where everything will line up correctly for the photograph so when you put the camera down you know you're standing exactly where Andrew stood a hundred years before um, it was really funny feeling to do but it's the kind of thing that you experienced going and reliving and and reinvestigating the photographs um there are a couple of other things about this this visit that he made to air and alloway um it's one of the very few places where he photographed a train or anything to do with the railway and um, perhaps it was a busman's holiday um you'd think that as a railwayman he might have had more interest in the trains but uh, not really he took a picture of uh, an engine on the station at air, which is very nice, in steam, ready to leave. And when I contacted the uh, Railway Society, they said, oh, yes, that's a, that engine had just been refurbished. Uh, I was amazed the detail they were able to provide. Um, uh, the other thing that, again, is the theme that comes through from, from looking at Alloway and Air is that Burns had travelled on the tram. Uh, and again, Air had just got its tramway out to Alloway to take the tourists out to Burns Cottage. Uh, and it's absolutely phenomenal the number of people that used it. When you did the research, it was just it's just extraordinary the number of people who were travelling on the trams. Looking and delving into Andrew Milne's box of treasures, as it were, and it was almost a Pandora's box, is that because he was competition-minded, uh, he didn't just go out and take a building or a picture of Harriet here or Harriet there, Harriet being his wife. Um, he would go to things and... Being Perth, living in Perth, which is a uh, fair city of Scotland, but uh, it's also home to a lot of things. And its sheep sales are tremendous there. And the biggest one there is the ram sales that they used to have. And to go to the ram sales, people would come in from all over the country, really, to buy the Scottish rams. And they would go into them there. I remember the rams where they talk about the, the rams at the ram shows with the big horns on it. Because my grandmother, which was Andrew Milne's sister-in-law, um, when I used to go up and stay with her in her hallway there on the wall was this big sheep's head with big curly horns on it that gazed down on everywhere. But uh, Andrew Milne took pictures of those 
and you can superimpose the pictures taken last year or the year before, uh, pre-COVID, and it could almost be the same things. The sheep look the same, the farmers look the same, but the atmosphere is all part of it. And how difficult was it to photograph a lot of sheep? Well, perhaps not quite as difficult as you might think. Um, because Andrew was competing, he wrote the details of his equipment on the back of some of the cards, which is fantastic because I was able to completely understand what he was doing. He gave us the exposure times and all sorts of things. And one of the things he tells us is he's using Paget plates. Now, uh, Paget was a dry plate uh, that had been created by Wilson and Whitfield. And, and they named the plate after the prize that they'd won, uh, which had been offered by Joseph Paget in 1880 for uh, the best dry plate process. And the first plates they introduced were called XXX because they were 30 times as fast as the previous uh, dry plates. And in fact, some of the plates that Andrew was using were the rapid plates and the swift plates that were the fastest plates that the Paget company used. And Andrew was buying the best materials, basically, to take his photographs. So he was getting up to 50 times the original speed of the dry plates of the, of the, uh, of the earliest dry plates. Uh, and that allowed him to take photographs that were instantaneous, to take photographs of things like sheep that might move uh, and of the cattle at the Perth show uh, and of other things. It gave him... It gave him access with his Thornton Pickard shutter to taking instantaneous photographs. Looking through the box, as we go through the box on there, and when we came to the ones that you were talking about just now, the sheep sales, um, I remember as a, a young young lad going up there to Perth and staying with my grandmother, which was Andrew's sister-in-law. Uh, we were up there. Her daughter, which was named Harriet after Andrew's Weiss Harriet, you know, the family traditions go in, make it really, really complicated. Her husband, Jimmy Meeklejohn, was actually an auctioneer at the Perth sheep sales. And I used to go up there and work with him and drive the sheep around up there. So um, looking back at his 1902 pictures, they came around extremely well. But if you go just outside Perth, there's a place called Dunkeld. And I think everybody who's a, a visitor up there goes to see the Rumbling Bridge. Now, Dunkeld Cathedral is uh, sort of like a ruin, but it's got some wonderful stonework on it. And to go and take pictures from where he was taking pictures of uh, populations, areas and things like that, then suddenly going into the historical side and the touristy side with the Rumbling Bridge, which is still exactly the same if you took a picture today as what it was then. Um, but what do you think of his pictures that he was taking of like Dunkeld Cathedral? Yes, Dun Dunkeld is definitely a tourist spot, but uh, Andrew took some lovely pictures in the cathedral there. And one of the aspects of the photographs that, that he's taken is that he catches the gardener or the caretaker there inside the church with his scythe, just tidying the inside of the church. And that makes a, a lovely um, atmospheric picture. Uh, and again, he's poised Harriet in the pictures. And when I went back, I didn't want to take a stereo camera. I took, made a deliberate decision uh, not to take photographs. I didn't want to compete with Andrew's photographs in any way. So I just took a very simple digital camera and took uh, a color 2D photograph of the same locations. But in some of them, we recreated the picture. Uh, and in the ones at Dundee, 
my Auntie Mary, who's also a relation of Uncle Andrew, uh, came along and she stood in for Harriet. And you can see her in my little picture there. Uh, of Harriet standing, looking at, in fact, the gravestone of one of the hoteliers in Dundee. Uh, and that's a, such a lovely photograph, the one of um, Dunkel Cathedral taken through the door. Uh, that's actually the picture I used on the front cover. Interesting, that, of uh, not wanting to go into competition. And uh, Look, at I've been to Dunkel Cathedral. It is a wonderful place to go. Uh, sounding like an advert for Visit Scotland now. So it's coming in with some great stuff there. We're looking at some pictures that our great uncle um, Andrew Milne took way back 1902 to 1907 um, with a stereographic camera. Uh, they weren't new. They'd been about since 1851 that they, they were coming out and introduced there. One or two famous people also have a go at these pictures. And it's a thing that you do and you take the pictures and when you look at them through the glasses, they are like when you go to a see a CD, a 3D film. It's absolutely amazing you go in there and think, yeah, that looks wonderful and brilliant. But Ian, you were talking about you only used uh, either your phone or just a straight normal single lens camera to go and prove that you were taking the same journey as Andrew Milne did when he went around Scotland, up the East Coast and everywhere taking the pictures. But you were so intrigued by it, you actually built your own camera. How difficult was that? Well, to say I built my own camera is slightly inaccurate, but I collected my own camera. Andrew's camera no longer exists. We, we don't have it. We don't know what became of it. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, see what this camera was he'd used. And because he wrote the on the backs of the cards, we knew it was a Thornton Picard Victo camera, uh, Stereo Victo, built by, sorry, not Hawthornton Pickard, built by uh, Hortons. Uh, and um, I started to look for the camera, and they don't exist. They're like hen's teeth. Uh, eventually, I found one collector who did have a photograph of one on his website, very uh, well-known, well-respected uh, collector of, the, uh, of uh, wooden brass cameras. Uh, and he kindly allowed me to borrow the photograph uh, but then I started to look for the camera, and after probably several years of sitting on eBay searches that didn't return anything, one day Victo Stereo came up on my search, uh, and I looked, and there was this camera, and it was in a pretty poor state. It didn't have a stereo shutter, it didn't have stereo lenses, uh, the bellows were falling apart, but it had the little plate that said Stereo Victo, so uh, I bid for it. Uh, like nobody else was going to win it uh, and got the basis of a camera uh, and from that I started to build up a camera uh, and I built I, I had to search again and wait and wait until I could find a, a Thornton Pickard stereo shutter and eventually I got that uh, and I needed lenses and the, the lenses aren't what Andrew would have used but they're they're a good pair of stereo lenses um, so my camera is not quite the same, but it's a nice thing to be able to show people. Uh, and so, sometimes I've done talks that go with this story. Uh, I have a presentation because when we launched the, the whole project, um, it was done at St. Andrews at a, um, an event that was focused on stereo photography. So I put a talk together for that. And I've given versions of that talk to one or two other groups 
uh, and I always bring along the stereo camera because it's great to see it there. It's on the kind of wooden tripod that you were talking about uh, earlier, uh, and I can show people what it what it actually looked like. Uh, and it's got a stereo shutter. The, the really interesting thing about the stereo shutter is that you can adjust the distance between the two lenses. And when you're taking stereo photographs, this is very important because the distance that you spread the lenses apart affects how much 3D depth you get in the photograph. So if you are an experienced 3D photographer, you would use a slightly different spread depending on whether your subject was very close or maybe a landscape. Uh, and, and so the shutter that I have has like a little wheel between the two lenses that you can turn and you can just push the lenses apart and together. The, um, the, 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 the wisdom on this is that they should be about seven centimeters apart most of the time to be similar to the way human eye works. And if you think about what stereo photography is doing, you're taking two photographs just as if the two lenses were your two eyes. And then when you view the picture later on, you're representing the image that those two cameras, those two lenses took to your left and right eye, just as if they were seeing it originally. And that's why your brain can do the magic and put it together into a 3D picture. One more chance. That was good. I like that. I like the idea that you, you persevered and found it. There's one or two other people into stereo uh, photography. You want to name drop those? But doing, <laughs> they go through. Yeah, well, he'll talk about those. Uh, but the lenses are the main things, weren't they? The lens is the main thing of a camera. And uh, how difficult is it to get a good lens? Yes, the, the lenses that Andrew was using would have been very expensive for the time. Uh, as I said, he, he, you know, this was an expensive hobby he'd taken up. And to get the lenses, he had Taylor Taylor Hobson lenses, rapid rectilinear lenses, which were really good lenses for the time. And what's more, for stereo photography, he had consecutive serial numbers. So he had two lenses that were made on the production line, one after the other. They were made virtually as a pair for stereo photography. And if anybody ever comes up with the lenses with the numbers that I have on the cards, uh, I, I, I would really dearly love to get my hands on them because those lens numbers, we know which lenses Andrew took the pictures with. Yeah, and, and if all of this is whetting your interest for stereo photography, um, Jim's alluded to some famous people involved with stereo photography. Um, some of you will already know, uh, and if you don't know, you know, Brian May uh, of Queen fame is very famous for the books that he's written, and he's, he's refounded the London Stereostopic Company. Uh, and you can go and look on their website and you'll see some great books that he's written. When he was writing his first one, actually, I had started on a Hill Road before he had written um, A Village Lost and Found. Uh, and when that book was launched, uh, I was fortunate to be able to go to the book launch and met Brian and told him about the book that I was writing. Uh, and he kindly signed the front of my copy of A Village Lost and Found with a, a wish that my book went well, which was really nice. Um, but, you know, go to his website. He's got loads of modern stereoscopic stuff that you can have a look at. Um, there are one or two people on uh, Instagram that you can follow. People like uh, Nanti underscore Narking, who produces some lovely pictures on a, a regular basis. Uh, and there, there is modern ways to do stereophotography. Um, dare I say, you can use your phone. Um, I have a little app that I use. I'll give you the name of it in a moment. Uh, and you can take stereo pictures and you can play with this and you can have fun. 
And there is something, there's something lovely about that simple pleasure of seeing a picture pop into 3D. And you don't have to have a viewer. I mean, usually you view stereo photographs with a viewer. It has a pair of lenses and they just help your eyes to get everything in focus quickly. But there is a technique called free viewing. And actually, if you take one of these stereo pairs and just hold it in front of yourself and let your eyes relax, you can actually get them to see the 3D view. They'll do it without having to have the, the viewer. Um, and you can do that with the image on a phone or you can get uh, Google Cardboard, which is a thing that will hold your phone, and you can view the 3D pictures on it. So there's lots of modern ways to get into 3D viewing. It's a very old technology, but it's got a very big future still. Andrew Milne was a photographer that uh, we found this uh, superb box of stereo photographs that uh, Ian and I and doubtless other members of the family have studied over the years. And we've looked at them now, and we think they're absolutely brilliant. Ian has recreated some of them there, but basically, um, Andrew was a competition photographer to start with before he got into stereo uh, photography or before he did anything. He loved photography and he loved the different things. Competition photography, friends in photographs. How do you get on with that? We don't actually know how he did in the photo in competition. We just know that he was in competition because he wrote all these details on the back of the cards. And he was quite offering entering, as far as I can see, two or three photographs as a set uh, with a common theme, perhaps. And this is where On a Hill Road comes from. It was actually one of the themes that he, he used. And I love it because, to me, it says something about being out with your camera. Uh, and so I, 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 I continue to use it for my own work, having spent so much time on this research project. Um, Andrew definitely was a member of some kind of club or society. I haven't managed to prove he was a member of the Natural uh, History Society, which had the camera club in Perth. Um, but as far as I can tell, he probably was a member of that club. And one of the things that's really great, and, and I'm sure the people listening can relate to, was Andrew went on photo walks with his friends uh, and there are two sets of photographs where we can clearly see that he's out with other friends with cameras. Uh, both of them are around Perth. They're quite close to Perth. Um, the first one is at Canoole Hill, where you can see the bowler-hatted friends, and he's poised them in one or two places. But you can see that they are they are there with their cameras. Um, and actually, that trip produced one of the photographs, which, again, is one of these pictures that Andrew took of a very famous tourist view, effectively. But he managed to make it that little bit different and he managed to make it interesting. And you may have seen Canole Hill, which is a, a very famous folly tower uh, just on the edge of Perth with a beautiful view over the Tay. Uh, and you'll see this picture on calendars. You'll see it everywhere. When Andrew took the picture, he got one of his, his compatriots to walk around and stand. this tower stands right on the top of a cliff. So the cliff drops off below the tower. And he got the chap to walk around and stand right on the promontory on the edge of the cliff below the tower. And it creates a superb scale in the picture because you've got the very small person and the very large tower and the big cliff, cliff drop below. Um, I think it's the best picture of Canoole Hill I, I, I've seen. It's lovely. Um, the other trip that he took with his friends on a photo walk is through the local woods in the, in Schoon at Quarry Mill. 
Uh, and that's really good because you actually get to see them setting up their cameras. You get to see them carrying all their gear, going through. And in, and, and in there, he's actually taking some quite, you know, for the time, quite... Um, well, they are of the they're photographs of the event. He's not setting up a photograph. They're photographs of the photo walk, uh, and so that's quite nice as well. And as with so many of these pictures, if you ever get the chance to go to any of these locations, they're beautiful. The walk through Quarry Mill is a woodland walk with a mill stream running all the way through the through there. Um, it was used for industry uh, in years, many many years ago. Uh, off off this stream but it's a beautiful walk on the edge of Scone. it's a great story that one about canoe hill now i'm more of a romantic than you perhaps when i went up canoe hill and had a look up there i never thought it as a folly i always looked upon it as a watchtower watching over the tay because if you go back to 800 890 or something like that when the vikings were about the vikings would have come up the tay uh, they would have come up there. If you got somebody on top of Canoe Hill, you could have seen them coming and you could have protected your town from it as they went around. I prefer that image much more than your folly. You know, you go there, follies. Some of that some young buck decided to have built up there. No, I think it was a proper, proper watchtower. But talking about taking events and taking around there, uh, a whole series of pictures that came out when we were looking through the box was one of the great ones. Perth Show, Perth Show 1902. Perth Show 1902. The crowds were so thick around the ropes that you could not get near the edge. They'd never seen such crowds there. Great place down on the inch to watch this great show there. They had everything was down there. A great, great event going down there. But he's got the whole crowd atmosphere going to it. And he's a local photographer going about it. Um, you took a picture of uh, a superb trap, high wheel trap, as it went through superb one which matched the trap almost matched exactly the same one as what was in andrew's picture what do you think of that yes attending the perth show i attended in i think it was 2010 it, it was quite an experience because so much was the same uh, and when i found this uh, trap for the ride out it, the photograph it could almost have been the same trap as in andrew's picture it was really really well just amazing that it was so, so similar in all the time and as you say, Andrew's pictures have very large crowds. And there was a reason for that. And when I was doing the book, I was doing research for each thing. And because Andrew had actually written 1902 show on the on that particular photograph, I was able to go back and look at the uh, Perth newspapers. And what I discovered was that there'd been a big concern about this show that there wouldn't be a crowd um, because it was going to be at the same time as the coronation that occurred that year. Uh, but in the event, they needn't have worried. There was just even more crowds because of the coronation year. Uh, and that was why it was such, such a big crowd at the show. Doing the local trips there, I mean, he went from Perth. He went down to Dundee and then from Dundee he went along to St Andrews. Uh, right next to that is Canoosty, where he had family living there. Uh, my grandmother lived at Canoosty. So obviously he'd gone down there to go down and see them, whether they had been there or whether they were still in Hillhead at the time. I don't know which way round they were. They moved over Scotland quite a fair bit round. But Andrew was taking some great pictures. He took some great pictures of St Andrews. St Andrews, seaside town for Dundee, as you go along there. It's got the beaches, it's got everything by the warmth. The sea, you could chill beer in it any time of the year. It is like that. 
but some of the pictures he took were absolutely brilliant. That they would make still um, holiday photographs for today. And uh, did you get to St Andrews? Yes, one I did get to St Andrews uh, because uh, this is where the book was was launched. Um, but um, one of the most charming photographs you talk about going in the sea. Andrew took two photographs at St Andrews that are quite interesting to look at today because obviously things change over time. Some of the photographs, when I went back to the locations, it was exactly the same. Uh, some of the photographs, you couldn't even find the location. It just changed so dramatically. But at St Andrews, there are two photographs taken on the seafront. Uh, and one of them is of the ladies' bathing station. Uh, and you can see like a little building almost hanging on the side of the cliff in the photograph. And the second one, which I think is just such a charming picture, is of the gentleman's bathing pond at St Andrews. And this is a, a sea bathing pool. So the tide comes in, it fills the pond, the tide goes out, and then there is a, a captive area of water that you can swim in. And again, it has its little changing building on stilts at the side in the photograph. But what makes this photograph so charming is there is a little bridge with beautiful ornate raw ironwork uh, across the front of the picture and standing, looking into the view and looking into the bathing pool is a little girl of maybe five. Uh, and she just makes the photograph. It's beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, and uh, that location I did manage to find. The bridge is still there, uh, uh, but it's where the Sea Life Centre is in St Andrews now. Um, the other thing, which, which I had a bit of fun trying to find the location in St Andrews, was the uh, location of the Piero stage. Uh, and one of the things that came out of the, the research was the number of times you could see how important Pierrot's were in uh, entertainment in Edwardian times. Uh, and we see them on the beach at St Andrews. We see them in Perth. Uh, and I can't think where now, but I'm sure they turn up somewhere else as well. Uh, uh, and they, they were uh, an Edwardian entertainment of the day, you know. Um, this has been an interesting conversation because we've been talking about what is really a box found in the loft of photographs taken by great, great Uncle Andrew, Uncle Andrew Milne, uh, Uncle Andrew Gustry Milne, to give him his full name there. He was a man who married to Harriet, lived in Perth and worked on the railways and took up photography. And he went around and he took all these pictures right the way around. And one of the parts he did in the, the there, he entered competitions where he took pictures there. And competitions where you submit three photographs showing the trams at um, wherever. And he did that. And he put this one set went in was on a hill road, which was a title grabbed by you because it's such a great, great title. And you couldn't have thought about it if you'd even tried to work it out. You'd never come up with that. But on a hill road up the west coast of Scotland somewhere, Uncle Andrew set his tripod up, not too far from the station because it was heavy to carry, and he went and did that. And he took these pictures going through. You had this, and it inspired you to go and do the same journey and to record it all into a book. How difficult was it for you to get your head around the whole lot? Well, you have to remember, Jim, that when I started, I didn't know I was going to write a book. And so uh, I sat there with the box that you've mentioned uh, and the cards and I took them out and I took them out in the order in which they're in the box because I, I didn't know if there was any order to them. 
and scanned them and numbered them, gave them all an identity so that I could refer to them. Uh, and then I started to sort them. Uh, and the first sorting that I wanted to do was to separate the commercial cards from the ones that Andrew had taken. Uh, and there were one or two commercial cards that were quite easy to pick out. Uh, and then, of course, there were the naughty 90s that you've alluded to. And there were a number of those, uh, but they were quite easy to sort out as well. And then once I'd done that, I started to sort the cards into locations uh, and to start to put together the, the different groupings of where Andrew had gone. So eventually I had a set of photocopied uh, images of all of the of cards with their reference numbers sorted by the different locations. And I put each different location into a clear polythene sleeve and then I started to do research on that location. And if I got there, I could, if I went to the location, I could take the sleeve with the three, four, five photographs or whatever it was uh, for that location, go and find the locations and re-photograph the spots. But before I went there, most of the time I had done a lot of research. Uh, I bought books about the town. I did you know, a lot of research to find out about things. So for example, in the lovely photographs of Fraserburgh, I was in touch with the Scottish Fisheries Museum. I was actually able to identify who owned the boats that were in the pictures. Uh, and so there's a lot of research behind all of Andrew's pictures. Um, but I didn't know I was going to write a book to start with. It, it was just a, like a collector's fascination of going through and I've got to do the whole set. I had to end up going to, to visit everywhere. Um, but it gradually dawned on me that the pictures were great and there was a story to be told. Uh, and so I have a very logical approach to doing things. So I decided when I decided I was going to write the book, I thought, well, how do I write it? So I wrote a contents list. I put a number of pages down for each one of them. And there are about 150 photographs to get in the book, plus my photographs to go with them. Uh, and I, so I decided on the sections and I started writing. Well, one of the things that at school, my English was terrible. So the thought of me writing a book was like saying, go climb Everest, you know. Uh, if you told me when I was 14 I was going to write anything of any length of a book, I just wouldn't have believed it. Um, but the only way for me to do it was to do it in little pieces. So I would write a one location at a time. I'd give myself a word count uh, and I'd sit there and I'd draft 350 words on something and it was a little piece and by gradually eating away at the whole book in little pieces I was able to create the whole thing and when I got my first draft I thought wow I've done it but no I hadn't really we went through seven drafts my sister very kindly read it and marked it up uh, but there were seven drafts before I got to the final version of it there was a apocryphal story of trying to find a publisher. Uh, one publisher didn't give me a decision for a year, which I thought was disgraceful. But there we go. Uh, you know, they kept me hanging on. In the end, uh, I decided I was going to self-publish it because why I probably would have found a publisher eventually. I, it just, it was just, it, the time was going by and I wanted the project finished. I wanted it published. So uh, in fact, I published it myself and uh, that, again, was another at first because I had to find somebody to print it. Uh, in the end, it was actually printed in Italy. Um, 
I needed the viewers, which are included in the book, and they came from Hong Kong. And now I've got something that falls out, so I needed somebody to shrink wrap it. So it was quite a, it was quite a project and quite interesting to put together. Um, and I laid the whole book out myself uh, on a on a publishing software. Um, so it, just going and revisiting the places uh, was only a very small part of what it took to put Andrew's story together in a way it could be shared with people. What a total Herculean task that you set yourself to go out and do. Uh, you managed to do it as well. And I didn't think that box of photographs would ever come about it. It's been an interesting story. Thank you very much for listening to it. We, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, Andrew will tell you where you can have a look at some little snippets of the pictures that we've been talking about. Do try on your phone if you want to try stereo photography. It's absolutely brilliant if you can do that. But most of all, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, thank you for being with us while we talked about On a Hill Road. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, it's been great fun doing this with me, with you. And uh, I, I, I really, I was hoping that we would be able to have this conversation like this because um, we both have a shared um, knowledge and relationship with these photographs uh, and they're part of our family history. And I really just want to say thank you to everybody who's helped me along the journey from, you know, the boatman who took me out to the Isle of May, uh, just everybody there's too many to mention uh it's been it's been uh, it's just an amazing thing 10 years and now i shall take it forward um i look forward to the opportunity to go on the road with the the story and give the talks again uh when the pandemic allows that uh and uh, if you want to have a play with stereo photography then uh, the app that i mentioned earlier on your phone that you can get and have a go with is 3d steroid pro the one i play with uh, and you can find me at uh, onahillroad.com uh, or on Instagram at Ian underscore onahillroad. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy stereo photography. It's a whole new dimension to looking at pictures. <laughs>